Appendix four, part two of On War, volumes two and three by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Guide to Tactics, part two. The combat consists of two acts, the destructive and the decisive act. 114. From the fire combat with its destructive principle, and from the close combat with its principle of putting to flight, according to number 72, proceed two different acts in the partial combat, the destructive and the decisive act. 115. The smaller the masses are, the more these two acts will resolve themselves into one simple fire combat or one close combat. 116. The greater the masses, the more must these two acts be taken in a collective sense in such manner that the destructive act is made up of a number of simultaneous and successive fire combats and the decisive act in the same manner of several close combats one hundred and seventeen in this manner the division of the combat not only continues but also extends itself more and more the greater the masses brought into conflict whilst the destructive act and the decisive act are further and further separated from each other in time the destructive act one hundred and eighteen the greater the mass of troops the more important becomes the physical destruction for a the influence of the commander is so much the less his influence is greater in close combat than in fire combat b the moral inequality is so much less with large masses whole armies for instance there is nothing but the difference of nationality whilst in smaller bodies there is to be added that of the corps and of individuals and lastly of special accidental circumstances which in large bodies balance each other see the order of battle is so much the deeper that is there are so many more reserves to renew the combat as we shall see in the sequel the number of partial combats therefore increases and consequently the duration of the total combat and by that means the influence of the first moment which is so very decisive in putting the enemy to flight is lessened one hundred and nineteen from the preceding number it follows that the greater the mass of the army the greater must be the physical destruction as a preparation for the decision one hundred and twenty this preparation consists in this that the number of combatants diminishes on both sides but the relation alters in our favour one hundred and twenty one the first of these is sufficient if we are already morally and physically superior the second is requisite if such is not the case one hundred and twenty two the destruction of the enemy's combatant force is made up a of all that are put physically hors de combat killed wounded and prisoners b of whatever part is spent physically and morally one hundred and twenty three after a fire combat of several hours duration in which a body of troops has suffered severe loss for instance a quarter or one-third of its numbers the debris may for the time be looked upon as a heap of cinders for a the men are physically exhausted b they have spent their ammunition c their arms want cleaning d many have left the field with the wounded although not themselves wounded e the rest think they have done their part for the day and if once they get beyond the sphere of danger do not willingly return to it if the feeling of courage with which they started has had the edge taken off the longing for the fight is satisfied g the original organization and formation are partly destroyed or thrown into disorder 
124 the consequences e and f make their appearance more or less according as the combat has been successful or the reverse a body of troops which has gained ground or successfully maintained the original position assigned to it can be made further use of more easily than one that has been repulsed 125a there are two deductions from number 123 which we must bring under notice the first is the economy of force which is made by the use of a smaller number of men in the combat with firearms than the enemy employs for if the dilapidation of forces in the fire combat consists not only in the loss of those placed hors de combat but further in this that all who have fought are lowered in their powers then naturally this lowering of powers will be less on the side which brings the fewest troops into action if five hundred men have been able to maintain their ground against a thousand if the losses are equal on each side say two hundred men then on the one side there will remain three hundred men who are fatigued while the other side will have eight hundred of whom three hundred are fatigued but five hundred are fresh readers note in the preceding sentence there are two marks leading to footnotes the footnotes read according to chapter twelve page one hundred and nine volume one it seems that this passage should read thus if out of a body of a thousand men five hundred have been placed in reserve and the remaining five hundred men etc the second footnote marks the first occurrence of the number three hundred with a dagger and reads eight hundred see chapter twelve page one hundred nine volume one i will reread the sentence with the substitution suggested in the footnotes if out of a body of a thousand men five hundred have been placed in reserve and the remaining five hundred men have been able to maintain their ground against a thousand if the losses are equal on each side say two hundred men then on the one side there will remain eight hundred men who are fatigued while the other side will have eight hundred of whom three hundred are fatigued but five hundred are fresh 125b the second deduction is that the weakening of the enemy consequently the dilapidation of the enemy's combative power is of much greater extent than the mere number of killed wounded and prisoners would seem to represent this number amounts to perhaps only one-sixth of the whole there should therefore remain five-sixths but out of that five-sixths in all probability only the untouched reserve and some troops which although they have been in action have suffered very little are in reality to be regarded as serviceable and the remainder perhaps four-sixths may be looked upon for the present as a caput mortem one hundred and twenty six this diminution of the efficient mass is the first aim of the destructive act the real decision can only be accomplished by smaller masses of troops one hundred and twenty seven but although the absolute size of the masses is not an unimportant matter as fifty men opposed to fifty can proceed to a decision on the spot while fifty thousand opposed to fifty thousand cannot do so still it is the relative not the absolute size of the masses which is an obstacle to the decision thus if five-sixths of the whole have measured their powers in the destructive act then both generals even if they have continued on an equality will be much nearer to the final resolution which they have to make and it is only a relatively small impulse which is required to bring on the decisive act it is all the same whether the sixth part remaining is a sixth of an army of thirty thousand therefore five thousand men or one-sixth of an army of a hundred and fifty thousand men that is twenty-five thousand men one hundred and twenty eight the principal object of each side in the destructive act is to work out for itself a preponderance for the decisive act one hundred and twenty nine 
This superiority can be obtained by the destruction of the enemy's physical force, but it may also be obtained by the other causes enumerated under number 4. 130. There is, therefore, in the destructive act, a natural endeavour to profit by all the advantages which offer as far as circumstances will admit. 131. Now the combat of large masses is always split into several partial combats, number 23, which are more or less independent and therefore must frequently contain in themselves both a destructive and a decisive act, if the advantages obtained from the first of these acts are to be turned into account. 132. Through the skilful and successful mixture of the close combat, we chiefly obtain the advantages which are to be derived from shaking the enemy's courage, creating disorder in his ranks, and gaining ground. 133. Even the physical destruction of the enemy's forces is much increased by that means, for prisoners can only be made in close combat. Thus we conceive that if an enemy's battalion is shaken by our fire, if our bayonet attack drives it out of an advantageous position and we follow him in his flight with a couple of squadrons, this partial success may place important advantages of all kinds in the scale of the general result. But then it is a condition that it be done without involving this victorious troop in difficulty, for if our battalion and our squadron through this means should fall into the hands of superior forces of the enemy, then this partial decision has been ill-timed. 134. The utilising of these partial successes is in the hands of the subordinate commanders and gives a great advantage to an army which has experienced officers at the head of its divisions, brigades, regiments, battalions, batteries, etc. 135. Thus each of the two commanders seeks to obtain for himself in the course of the destructive act those advantages which bring about the decision, and at all events pave the way for it. 136. The most important of these objects are always captured guns and ground gained. 137. The importance of the latter is increased if the enemy has made it an object to defend a strong position. 138. Thus, the destructive act on both sides, but especially on that of the assailant, is a cautious advance towards the object. 139. As numbers are so little decisive in the fire combat, number 53, therefore the endeavour naturally follows to keep up the combat with as few troops as possible. 140. As the fire combat predominates in the destructive act, therefore the greatest economy of force must be the prevailing principle in the same. 141. As numerical force is so essential in close combat, therefore for the decision of partial combats in the destructive act, superior numbers must frequently be employed. 142. But upon the whole, the character of thrift must rule here also, and, in general, only those decisions are to the purpose which realise themselves of themselves, as it were, without any great preponderance of numbers. 143. An inopportune endeavour to gain the decision leads to the following consequences. A. If it is undertaken with economy of our forces, we get involved with superior forces. B. If the requisite force is used, we get exhausted before the right time. 144. The question whether it is opportune to try for a decision recurs very frequently during the destructive act. Nevertheless, as respects the great ultimate decision, it presents itself at the end of the destructive act. 145. The destructive act on this account naturally strives at certain points to pass into the decisive act, because no advantage developed in the course of that act will attain completeness except through the decisive act, which is its necessary complement. 146. The more fruitful in results the means applied in the destructive act are, or the greater the physical and moral superiority, the stronger will be 
this tendency of the whole. 147. But when the results are small or negative, or when the enemy has superiority, this tendency likewise may be so rare and so feeble at isolated points that as respects the whole, it is much the same as if it did not exist at all. 148. This natural tendency may lead to ill-timed decisions in partial combats, as well as in the total combat, but it is very far from being an evil on that account, it is rather a necessary property of the destructive act, because without it much would be neglected. 149. The judgment of the leader at each point, and of the commander-in-chief in the total combat, must determine whether an opportunity which presents itself is advantageous for a decisive blow or not that is, whether it may not lead to a counter-blow, and thus to a negative result. 150. The conduct of a combat in relation to the preparation preceding the decisive stroke, or rather, the preparation expressly for that stroke, consists therefore in organising a fire combat, and in a wider sense a destructive act, and giving to it a proportionate duration, that is, in only proceeding to the decisive stroke when it appears that the destructive act has produced sufficient effect. 151. The judgment on this point must be guided less by the clock, that is, less by the mere relations of time, than by the events which have taken place, by the evident signs of a superiority having been obtained. 152. Now, as the destructive act, if attended with good results, strives of itself already towards the decisive act, therefore, the duty of the chief consists principally in determining when and where the moment arrives to give reins to this tendency. 153. If the tendency towards the decisive act is very weak during the destructive act, that is a tolerably sure sign that victory cannot be calculated on. 154. In such a case, therefore, the chief and his generals will usually not give, but receive, the decisive shock. 155. If still it must be given, then it takes place by an express order, which must be accompanied by the use of all the personal means of inspiring the men, all the stimulating influence, which the general has at his command. The Decisive Act 156. The decision is that event which produces in one of the generals a resolution to quit the field. 157. The grounds for quitting the field we have given in number 4. These grounds may come forth gradually by one small disaster after another, being heaped up in the course of the destructive act, and the resolution may therefore be taken without a really decisive event. In such a case, no decisive act in particular takes place. 158. But the resolution may also be produced by one single very disastrous event, therefore suddenly, when up to that moment everything has been evenly balanced. 159. Then that act of the enemy which has called forth this resolution is to be regarded as the decisive act. 160. The most common case is that the decision ripens gradually in the course of the destructive act, but the resolution of the vanquished gets its final impulse from some particular event. Therefore, in this case also the decisive act is to be considered as having been given. 161. If a decisive act is given, then it must be a positive action. A. It may be an attack. B. Or it may be only the advance of reserves hitherto held under cover. 162. With small bodies, close combat by a single charge is often decisive. 
163, when larger masses are engaged, the attack by means of close combat may also suffice, but a single charge will then hardly be sufficient. 164. If the masses are still larger, there is then a mixture of the fire combat, as in the case of horse artillery supporting the charge of heavy masses of cavalry. 165. With great bodies composed of all arms, a decision can never result from close combat alone. A renewed fire combat is necessary. 166. But this renewed fire combat will be of the nature of an attack itself. It will be carried out in close masses, therefore with an action concentrated in time and space, as a short preparation for the real attack. 167. When the decision is not the result of a particular close combat, but of a number of simultaneous and consecutive combats of both kinds, it then becomes a distinct act belonging to the entire combat, as has already been said in a general way, number 115. 168. In this act, the close combat predominates. 169. In the same measure as the close combat predominates, so will also the offensive, although at certain points the defensive may be preserved. 170. Towards the close of a battle, the line of retreat is always regarded with increased jealousy. Therefore, a threat against that line is always then a potent means of bringing on the decision. 171. On that account, when circumstances permit, the plan of battle will be aimed at that point from the very first. 172. The more the battle or combat develops itself in the sense of a plan of this kind, so much the more seriously the enemy's line of retreat will be menaced. 173. Another great step towards victory is breaking the order of formation. The regular formation in which the troops commence the action suffers considerably in the long destructive combats, in which they themselves wring out their strength. If this wear and tear and exhaustion has reached a certain point, then a rapid advance in concentrated masses on one side against the line of battle of the other may produce a degree of disorder which forbids the latter any longer to think of victory and calls in requisition all his powers to place the separate parts of his line in safety and to restore the connection of the whole in the best way he can for the moment. 174. From what proceeds, it is evident that, as in the preparatory acts, the utmost economy of force must predominate, so in the decisive act, to win the mastery through numbers must be the ruling idea. 175. Just as in the preparatory acts, endurance, firmness and coolness are the first qualities, so in the decisive act, boldness and fiery spirit must predominate. 176. Usually only one of the opposing commanders delivers the deciding stroke, the other receives it. 177. As long as all continues in equilibrium, he who gives the decisive blow may be A, the assailant, B, or the defender. 178. As the assailant has the positive object, it is most natural that he should deliver it, and therefore this is what occurs most frequently. 179. But if the equilibrium is much disturbed, then the decision may be given A, by the commander who has the advantage, B, by the one who is under the disadvantage. 180. The first is plainly more natural, and if this commander is also the assailant, it is still more natural. Therefore, there are few cases in which the decision does not emanate from this commander. 
181. But if the defender is the party who has the advantage, then it is also natural that he should give the decision, so that the relative situation which is produced by degrees has more influence than the original intention of offensive and defensive. 182. When the decision is given by the assailant, although he has palpably the disadvantage, it looks like a last attempt to gain his original object. If the defender, who has gained advantages, gives him time to do so, it is certainly consistent with the nature of the positive intention of the assailant to make such a last attempt. 183a. A defender who, although decidedly at a disadvantage, still proceeds to give the decision, does that which is contrary to the nature of things, and which may be regarded as an act of desperation. The result in the decisive stage is confirmable to the relations just developed, so that, as a rule, it will only be favourable to the side which gives the decision if he is naturally led to do so by the relations in which he stands. 184. When all is still in a state of equilibrium, the result is generally favourable to the side which gives the decision, for at the moment when a battle is ripe for decision, when the forces have worn themselves out on each other, the positive principle is of much greater weight than at the commencement. 185. The general who receives the decision must either determine on an immediate retreat in consequence and decline all further combat, or he may continue the combat. 186. If he continues the engagement, he can only do so as a. A commencement of his retreat, because he wants time to make the requisite arrangements, or b. A virtual struggle, through which he still hopes for victory. 187. If the general who accepts the decision stands in very favourable relations, he may, in so doing, also adhere to the defensive. 188a. But if the decision proceeds naturally from the advantageous situation of the side giving it, then the general who accepts it must also pass over to a more or less active defence, that is, he must oppose attack by attack, partly because the natural advantages of the defence, position, order, surprise, wear themselves out by degrees in the course of the combat, and at last there is not enough of them left, partly because, as we have said in number 184, the positive principle acquires incessantly more and more weight. Their separation as regards time. 188b. The view here propounded that every combat is composed of two separate acts will meet with strong opposition at first sight. 189. This opposition will proceed partly from a false view of the combat, which has become habitual, partly from an over-pedantic importance being ascribed to the idea of such a division. 190. We imagine to ourselves the opposition between attack and defence as too decided. The two activities as too completely antithetical, or rather, we assume the antithesis to be where it is not to be found in practice. 191. From this it results that we imagine the assailant from the first moment to the last, as steadily and unremittingly striving to advance, and every modification in that advance as an entirely involuntary and compulsory one which proceeds directly from the resistance encountered. 192. According to this idea, nothing would be more natural than that every attack should begin with the furious energy of an assault. 193. Still, even those who adhere to this kind of idea have become accustomed to a preparatory act on the part of the artillery, because it was too plain that without it an assault would generally be useless. 194. But otherwise that absolute tendency to advance to the attack has been considered so natural that an attack without a shot being fired is looked upon as the ideal of perfection. 
even frederick the great up to the time of the battle of zorndorf looked upon fire in the attack as something exceptionable one hundred and ninety five although there has since been a disposition to modify that notion still there are numbers at the present time who think that the assailant cannot make himself master of the important points in a position too soon one hundred ninety six those who make the greatest concessions to fire at the same time advocate an immediate advance to the attack the delivery of a few volleys by battalion close to the enemy's position and then an onset with the bayonet one hundred ninety seven but military history and a glance at the nature of our arms show that absolutely to despise the use of fire in the attack is an absurdity one hundred ninety eight a little acquaintance with the nature of the combat and above all actual experience teach us also that a body of troops which has been engaged under fire is seldom fit for a vigorous assault therefore the concession mentioned in number one hundred ninety six is worth noting one hundred ninety nine lastly military history gives instances without number in which owing to a premature advance advantages previously gained have had to be abandoned with serious loss therefore the principle mentioned in number one hundred ninety five is also not admissible two hundred we maintain accordingly that the idea now alluded to of an unmixed kind of attack if we may use that expression is entirely false because it only answers to a very few extremely exceptional cases 201 but if a commencement with close combat and a decision without preparation in a great battle are not consistent with the nature of things then of itself there arises a distinction between the preparation by fire for the decision and the decision itself therefore between the two acts which we have been discussing 202 we have granted that this distinction may fall to the ground in affairs which are quite of a minor nature open bracket as for instance between small bodies of cavalry close bracket the question now is whether it does not also come to an end if the masses attain to certain proportions not as to whether the employment of fire might cease for that would be a contradiction in itself but whether the sharp distinction between the two activities ceases so that they can no longer be considered as two separate acts two hundred and three it may perhaps be maintained that a battalion should fire before it charges with the bayonet the one must precede the other and thus two different acts take place but only as regards the battalion not as respects the greater subdivision of the brigade etc these have no fire period and decision period they seek to come in contact with the object pointed out to them as speedily as possible and must leave the way in which it is done to the battalions two hundred and four do we not perceive that in this way all unity would be lost as one battalion fights quite close to another the successes and reverses of one must have a necessary influence on others and as the effect of our musketry fire is so small that it requires considerable duration to make it efficacious the influence just noticed must be greater and more decisive through that duration even on this ground alone there must be for the brigade as well as for the battalion a certain general division of time as respects the destructive and the decisive combats two hundred and five but another more substantial reason is that for the decision we are glad to use fresh troops at least troops that have not been engaged in the destructive act but these must be taken from the reserve and the reserve by their nature are common property and on that account cannot be divided beforehand amongst the battalions two hundred and six now as the necessity of a division in the combat passes on from the battalion to the brigade therefore from that it passes on to the division and from the division to still larger bodies two hundred and seven but as the parts of a whole divisions of the first order 
always become more independent the larger the whole is therefore it is true the unity of the whole will also press less stringently on them and thus it happens that in the course of a partial combat more decisive acts may and will always take place according as the whole is greater two hundred and eight the decisions when corps are large will therefore not unite themselves into a whole to the same degree as in the case of corps of smaller size but will distribute themselves more as regards time and space still between the beginning and the end a notable distinction between the two different acts is always observable two hundred nine now the parts corps may be so large and their separation from each other so wide that although their action in the combat is certainly still directed by the will of one general a necessary condition to constitute an independent combat yet this direction limits itself to instructions at the commencement or at most to a few orders in the course of the combat in this case such a part corps has in itself almost complete power to organize its whole combat two hundred and ten the more important the decisions which rest with a corps by its situation so much the more they will influence the decision of the whole indeed we may even suppose the relation of some parts to be such that in their decisions that of the whole is at once contained and therefore a separate decisive act for the whole is no longer required two hundred and eleven example in a great battle in which the parts of the army of the first rank are corps a brigade may receive the order at the commencement to take a village for this purpose it will make use for itself of its destructive act and its decisive act now the taking of this village may have more or less an influence on the ultimate decision of the whole but it is not in the nature of things that it should greatly influence and much less that it should affect the decision of itself because a brigade is too small a body to give a decision at the commencement of a battle but we may very well conceive that the effectual taking of this village forms nevertheless part of the destructive measure by which the enemy's force is to be shattered and reduced on the other hand if we suppose an order given to a considerable corps perhaps a third or half of the whole force to take a certain important part of the enemy's position then the result expected through this corps may easily be so important as to be decisive for the whole and if this corps attains its object no further decisive act may then be necessary now it is easy to conceive further that owing to distance and the nature of the country very few orders can be transmitted to this corps in the course of the battle consequently that both preparatory and decisive measures must be left to its decision in this manner one common decisive act falls to the ground altogether and it is divided into separate decisive acts of some of the great parts two hundred and twelve this indeed frequently takes place in great battles and a pedantic notion of the severance of the two acts of which we conceive the battle to consist would therefore be in contradiction with the course of such a battle two hundred and thirteen although we set up this distinction in the working of a battle as a point of great importance it is far from our intention to place importance on the regular severance and division of these two activities and to assist upon that as a practical principle we only wish to separate in idea two things which are essentially different and to show how this inherent difference governs of itself the form of the combat two hundred and fourteen the difference in the form shows itself most plainly in small combats where the simple fire and close combat form a complete contrast to each other the contrast is less decided when the parts are longer because then in the two acts the two forms of combat from which they proceed unite themselves again but the acts themselves are greater take more time and consequently are further separated from each other in time 
215. There may be no separation also, as regards the whole, in so far that the decision has already been handed over to separate corps of the first order. But still, even then, a trace of it will be found in the whole, as it must be our endeavour to bring the decisions of these different corps into concert in relation to time, whether it be that we consider it necessary that the decision should take place simultaneously, or that the decision should take place in a certain order of succession. 216. The difference between these two acts will, therefore, never be completely lost as respects the whole, and that which is lost for the whole will reappear in the elements of the first order. 217. This is the way in which our view is to be understood, and if thus understood, then, on the one hand, it will not come short of the reality, and on the other, it will direct the attention of the leader of a combat, let it be great or small, partial or general, to giving each of the two acts of activity its due share, that there may be neither precipitation nor negligence. 218. Precipitation there will be if space and time sufficient are not allowed to the destructive act, if things are broken across the knee, an unfortunate issue of the decision results, which either cannot be repaired at all, or at all events remains a substantial disadvantage. Reader's note, in the previous sentence there is an asterisk marking a footnote. The footnote says, done hand over head, and it is placed after the phrase, if things are broken across the knee. Reader's note ends. 219 negligence in general there will be if a complete decision does not take place either from want of courage or from a wrong view of the situation the result of this is always waste of force but it may further be a positive disadvantage because the maturity of the decision does not quite depend upon the duration of the destructive act but on other circumstances as well that is to say on a favourable opportunity end of appendix four part two recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia